Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn. We've got an excellent show for you today. I'm here with author Noah Letterman, who's joining me to discuss his memoir, A World Erased, A Grandson's Search for His Family's Holocaust Secrets, published in about a week, February 7th, it comes out by Roman and Littlefield Press. Noah, welcome. Thanks for having me, Shira. Well, thank you for coming in advance of your book. My pleasure. (laughs) So let me ask you, this project from what I see... Hello, welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn. We've got an excellent show for you today. I'm here with author Noah Letterman, who's joining me to discuss his memoir, A World Erased, A Grandson's Search for His Family's Holocaust Secrets, published in about a week, February 7th, it comes out by Roman and Littlefield Press. Noah, welcome. Thanks for having me, Shira. Well, thank you for coming in advance of your book. My pleasure. (laughs) So let me ask you, this project, from what I see, originally started out um, partially as a blog. And I'm wondering what inspired you to begin delving into your family's history and how you chose to write a book. The the history had always been fascinating to me, and, and, and I was always inquisitive of, of my grandparents and asking questions from a young age. But um, my grandparents had obviously raised my father and my aunt, and while doing so, they raised them on those stories and pretty much traumatized them. I mean, my father slept with a suitcase packed beneath his bed um, because it wasn't, you know, would the Nazis come to Brooklyn, New York? It was, they are going to come to Brooklyn, New York, and we need to be ready to run. And similarly, my aunt had eating disorders growing up. And, um, you know, after my grandparents saw what they had done to to my father and my aunt, they realized that the the grandchildren would need to be protected. And, um, uh, you know, among the grandchildren, I was probably the one who desired the stories the most. But um, like I had said, these were these were stories that were off limits. So. You know, naturally, as as a child, when a, when something is kept from you, I, I guess you just want it more, and that sort of fostered this curiosity that carried over into adulthood. And from there, I just started um, writing once I was able to acquire the stories. But that, you know, that took a while. 
So you mentioned that growing up, you had some sense of your grandparents being in the Holocaust. Um, what, what did you think you knew growing up, if anything, about their experiences? And was it the same for both of your grandparents? Yeah, so I knew very little, but the details that I, that I did know um, included that my grandmother and my grandfather were the only survivors in both of their families besides one cousin on my grandmother's side. I knew that they had been in Auschwitz and a whole bunch of other camps as if the Germans had failed to name the other camps. Um, And I knew that they were both part of the Warsaw ghetto uprising. And that was essentially all. So, um, and then I did know one other story because when I, when I asked my grandparents to share what had happened to them, I pretty much got two responses, not now, which made me hopeful that there would be a one day, here's the, here are these stories, or what's to tell as if they had grown up on, in the most you know, uneventful decades of the, uh, of the 20th century, which clearly they mm-hmm. was not the right term. But the, the, the third um, scenario or response I would receive was, uh, a story about this girl in Auschwitz uh, who had once taken my grandmother's bowl because the, the the Jews in Auschwitz were given bowls to collect their soup or their water for, uh, you know, for sustenance. And um, this girl had urinated in it. And this was the one story that my grandmother felt was appropriate to tell me as, as if it was her one PG story from the concentration camps and you know if this would have happened to to me or to you in this day and age we would be horrified but for her to have this one story that she felt was appropriate made me so curious as to uh what were these other stories that she was holding back on and you know how horrific must they be if she couldn't even tell me um so yeah i I didn't really know much as a child beyond those details but um I, i was consistently trying to get to the facts. And um, it wasn't until my grandfather passed away when I was 18 years old that I, that I got anywhere. And let me ask you something before we get to the turning point. And it sounds like your research with the passing of your grandfather, you write a lot about generations in this book, the secrets that are carried from one generation to the next and how knowledge is lost and gained and transmitted. Um, How do you think you mentioned a bit about how your father related to the Holocaust. So how do you think different generations related to your family's story within your own family? So, I I mean, to summarize how each generation related to the stories, I would say the, my grandparents had survived it. My father and my aunt tried to block it all out. And the grandchildren were, oblivious to all of the facts, um, except the distinction between the grandchildren was that I was the one who was really trying to get at the stories, whereas I don't think my, uh, my first cousins and my brother had as much interest in it as I did. And maybe I'm wrong, but it, it never, <laughs> it never mm-hmm. seemed up afterward. And so what were their initial reactions when you told them that you wanted to do something more formal with your family's history? Who? who, who? Any of them. Um, so it was interesting, actually. My, my grandmother um, 
she sat down with me and there was a reason she sat down with me, um, which we can get into a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father and my aunt were the most hesitant. They, you know, they began the process of bringing up this family history as, you know, I, I don't want to talk about it. This is stuff I blocked out for a very good reason. You know, the, 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 their words. And um, my, and, and, and I don't think my, you know, my brother or my cousins really knew what I was doing. It wasn't uh, something that I was necessarily sharing with them in such detail. Plus, my brother was overseas at the time and my cousins, um, you know, were just less involved uh, in in the conversations. But, um, yeah, and over time, my my father and my aunt started to get a little bit more comfortable. So, I mean, just a funny story. Um, one of the things that we had, which I, I wanted access to when I was doing the research was the uh, Shoah Foundation tapes that were filmed in the, in the mid-90s where my grandparents sat down with uh, Steven Spielberg's film crew and, you know, interviewed, uh, were interviewed about their Holocaust experiences. And my aunt had possession of those tapes. And I just asked my aunt, you know, can you give me those tapes? And she would tell me that they're probably in the closet. So I would ask her, can you go to the closet and get them for me? She's like, well, the closet's in the next room. And it was almost like you could hear in her in her voice that she did not want to even come near the physical tapes that contained the, these interviews. Even though I, I wasn't asking her to watch the interviews, it was just like this kryptonite to her. And, um, you know, but over time and uh, toward the end, they did become more comfortable and they, they shared the stories that they remembered of of my grandfather who had passed away before I got the opportunity to interview him. And they were able to confirm a number of the stories uh, that my grandmother had told me. And, you know, that those stories remained intact and memory didn't uh, smudge them at all. So, uh, or time hadn't smudged memory at all. So, uh, you know, it was interesting to see their evolution throughout the process. And finally, both of them sat down and read the book and, um, yeah, I think they learned things that they had never known and that they had remembered things that they had blocked out for many, many years. So let me ask you something that I really was struck by um, in the book is your travel stories. You're a traveler by nature. But until you became invested in uncovering your grandparents' stories, you actually never visited their birthplace of Oatbox. Um what led you to sort of this turning point to really trying to go to the place where your family's history, at least during World War II, began? So initially when I had set off on this trip, this, this trip I was right after college and it wound up being a 15-month trip. I was um, traveling around actually with a surfboard and spending all this time in little surf villages. And for the first time probably in my entire life, not thinking about the Holocaust, my connection to that time sort of slipping away because my, you know, four years prior when my grandfather had passed away, it really felt like the Holocaust stories were gone. He, he was buried in the ground and my grandmother had fallen into this really deep depression. So like I had said, the Holocaust was just not really as present in my life because it felt like the stories were lost. And, um, one of the rules that I had established for myself prior to leaving on this trip 
was that I would not travel to Poland. And the reason being was because as much animosity as my grandparents had for the Germans, as much anger that they possessed for, you know, what the Nazis had done, they felt that the Poles had done them the greatest wrong because the Poles were their neighbors. And to see their neighbors standing outside of their homes with sacks waiting to loot the properties of the Jews who were being sent off to uh, to the deportation squares to then be sent to Treblinka where they would inevitably be murdered. And to know that some of their neighbors had denounced them to the Germans just for you know a sack of sugar or a few sips of schnapps, that surely didn't sit well with them. And, um, you know, as much, like I said, as much hatred as they could have for, uh, for the unknown enemy, they had more hatred for their neighbors who did them wrong. So Mm -hmm. that was, that philosophy was pretty much inculcated in me as a child. And I grew up with that same sort of anger toward the poles. Um, so, you know, I, I stuck by that rule and what basically happened was I was traveling around Western Europe with, with a girlfriend at the time, and we went to the bank, and she went to draw out money, and she realized that she, her funds were gone. And it turned out that um, somebody had hacked her account, and we knew that if we wanted to continue this sort of travel, we had to go east. And for the first time when we got to Hungary, I saw the words Holocaust Museum printed on the side of a building, and it just sort of started flooding back to me all these memories or at least the absence of memories and and the the remembering of my childhood where I wanted these stories. And next I went to the Czech Republic where I visited for the first time a concentration camp and I kind of stood in a place that might have been familiar to my grandparents. It was a very different kind of concentration camp because it was Theresienstadt, the a propaganda camp, but a concentration camp nonetheless. And, um, you know, I just wanted to know what it was like to be in their shoes back then. And that really hit me hard. So I just wrote to my father about all the places that I had seen. And, you know, as I said, this was a guy who wanted nothing to do with that past. And so I kind of just expected, uh, you know, blase email, but he wrote back that, he had all the information of the camps that they were in and listed out the camps. And most interesting to me was he included their two addresses, their addresses in Utfux, Poland. And I had never known that existed. You know, this was like a piece of paper hiding in a, in a liquor cabinet in my apartment back home for all this time. And I didn't know it was there. So for the first time, I, I just thought like, what if I went there? What if, what would that, lead me to? What would that uncover? And it turns out that the trip to Utvux, it led me to a a post office where I went inside and I asked for the two street names. Um, The post office had no idea where either of these streets were. It turned out one street. Yeah, it was kind of a humorous event. But um, one street actually, to no fault of their own, it had disappeared because it was renamed because it was a Jewish street, and after uh, the Jewish population was erased from Utvux, uh, you know, for reasons that we could all speculate upon, um, they changed a lot of the names. Uh, my grandfather's street 
however, did exist, and it was right around the corner, and it took one of the uh, customers at the post office, the, uh, you know, she had to overhear the conversation and say, oh, Pugnieska is right around the corner. So that brought me to, to my grandfather's street, um, but the houses had been renumbered, so I couldn't necessarily uh, match his 12 Pugnieska to the current 12 Pugnieska. Um but I, I met a guy who pointed me to the town hall and like the post office that knew no street addresses, uh, the town hall had no records of anything. He also pointed me to a place they dubbed the Jewish center, but you know, they had no Jews. So it was really a, a trip that, that caused me to feel like I had found nothing. But I went back to my grandfather's street before I left Uthbox. And as I'm standing there, the man who gave me the map and pointed me to all these pointless places invited me inside for some tea because it was pouring rain and i guess he maybe he felt bad that i hadn't found anything and he brought his grandmother downstairs and his grandmother came down and i told her the story of who my grandfather was and she remembered the the jewish family down the block where the man was the butcher and he had a son and some daughters and they eventually pointed me to the house that um was my grandfather's and it, it remained empty because the previous tenant uh, prior to my arrival uh, was dead and um, I jumped the fence and stood there. And, you know, when I returned home, I found my grandmother sitting at the table, still mourning the loss of her husband, but that, uh, you know, seeing her there kind of made me decide because initially I wasn't going to tell her any of the stories because I figured it would just depress her more, but seeing her like that, I figured, what else can I talk about? So I mentioned that I went to Poland and her eyes lit up. And for the first time, she stopped crying in five years. And that launched us into the stories. So uh, Poland really, you know, as, as, as one would never have expected, uh, Poland and the Holocaust kind of brought her out of her depression, to, to say it strangely. <laughs> Did you, before going into this turning point, your your grandmother's relationship, I'm also wondering, did you have any preconceived notions of what you wanted to find or what you expected to find with um, when you went to Oatbox? And did it meet your expectations? Did it defy them? Do you think visiting this actual site of your family's past is important, even if it's a tragic one? Well, I will say that Going there was the thing that unlocked that vault, right? It was the thing that allowed my grandmother to recognize perhaps that I had traveled to this place where I was now somewhat familiar as well, as familiar as one could be in the year 2004. Uh, I was somewhat familiar with her history, you know, whether it was just the fact that I had stood in the same city that she had grown up in. And, uh, you know, for, for all that, I, I, I think I received the stories, you know, for doing that little act, you know, taking that one step. Did I, was I satisfied with what I found there? Absolutely not. I mean, this was a town that was 75% Jewish prior to the war. After the war, you could, pretty much estimate that it was 0% Jewish because the 14,000 Jews, we know that 12,000 were sent to their death in Treblinka or murdered in the forest. Um, so, you know, and of the 2,000 that were not, many of those Jews were murdered prior to that, uh, 
that liquidation and, mur- and mass murder, and, which took place in August 1942, uh, and many of them died years later in the camps. So, you know, to have a town that went from 75% Jewish to 0% Jewish in a matter of a day, more or less, um, you know, you would think there'd be some sort of recognition that Jews had once lived here, but there was a stone, which I actually didn't find then. Uh, I found it uh, this year when I went back in, in, in the summer of 2016. But, um, you know, the stone was buried in the deep in the forest, and uh, I didn't know about it then, and nobody really knew about it then. And uh, today there is a, another memorial stone outside of a shopping mall that says this is where a synagogue once stood. But, you know, there were four synagogues in the town, and the other three are pretty much marked by fire hydrants or empty forests. So it's um, it's a history that I think the Poles, not all Poles, but the majority of Poles have forgotten. And there are a few men in, in the town who are working toward uh, remembering, and I, but it's, it's, it's not up to the standards of, of what you would expect after, after this many people are wiped out. And, you know, one, one of the things that shocked me most was when I returned home, I went to the website for Utzbox Poland and, um, there was one sentence that on the website that just said, you, you know, the, the, the town was one seventy five percent Jewish and, and that was it more or less. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, to see all that or to see none of that is a bit frustrating and, um, yeah. So switching, um, switching lenses a little bit, one of the things that I thought you talked about really beautifully throughout the book was um, food and how food figured really prominently into your story, especially as it related to your connection with your grandparents, in particular your grandmother. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit more about food and how it related to your family and how that was really a point of connection and storytelling and love. Yeah, so, I mean, my grandmother, to me, growing up, had always been this stereotype, uh, in a sense. And, you know, I, I, I kind of always saw her as someone who just cooked and cleaned and fetched about things. And, um, you, you know, obviously that impression of her changed uh, over the years, especially when we sat down and I realized what a fool I had been to, to judge her that way um, and to realize that she was this person who had resisted oppression and had survived and, uh, you know, done everything that she needed to do, um, in the most trying of times and the most traumatic, you know, through the most traumatic experiences. But, um, you know, growing up, she was just always there delivering food onto the table, forcing us to eat, yelling at us to eat if we weren't, uh, you know, if we were talking too much at the, at the dining room table. And it was because, um, you know, I, I think there's that stereotype of the Jewish grandmother, but this was this was deeper, and this went deeper into the fact that she had watched her brother wither beside a fence in Maidanek where he would eventually die, and she had watched many of of her uh, of the of the people that she survived the war with or did not survive the war with wither because they were not fed and. Um, you know, die from a lack of food. So food meant a lot, and she forced it upon us. Um, the other thing about food in the book was it was the it was sort of her 
I mean, it was her passion. And when her, when her husband passed away, when my, when my poppy died, food became absent. Um, she no longer cooked. She just fell into this deep depression. And, um, one of the things that the Holocaust stories, uh, did was I think it offered her some sort of catharsis. Uh, it offered her an outlet to, to speak about her past and maybe establish some sort of memory for when she, you know, for when she would be gone. But it also got her back into the kitchen. I mean, not as much as in the years before, but she discovered something from her past that was, you know, the happier past. Uh, and I guess the other thing is food was her only connection to her mother who had been murdered in front of her. You know, she remembered making chillins with her mother for the Sabbath. And, um, you know, it was just, it, it really connected her to her past. And it also kind of gave us insight into her mood and, and how she was feeling. Um, so I think that that's sort of the, um, the role of food in this book. You know, your grandfather really emerges as an almost larger than life figure. What are some of the things that you discovered along the way about his experiences in World War II? And to what extent did that change the way in which you thought about him? So I had always seen my grandfather as a hero and this tough guy because, well, first of all, like I said, I, I knew that he had been in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And um, my, grand, my, my father used to use this term sewer rat, you know, as a, like an honorific in a sense, because the sewer rats were the boys who would leave the, the Warsaw Ghetto by any means necessary, usually by the sewers. Um, and because my grandfather had blonde hair and blue eyes, he was able to blend in with the, uh, with the poles on the outside as much as a, an emaciated Jew could at that time and um you know he would bring in weapons and and um supplies for the uprising so i knew he was a tough guy and you know sitting there watching wrestling with him and uh i got a sense that he was had that same sort of like fighter spirit that i was watching on tv even though what was on tv was a charade i knew what what he was demonstrating couldn't be faked so when I was at the, when, you know, when, when he died, when he passed away, I, um, I didn't really know much about him, but uh, at least in the sense of what, who he had been during the war. And um, the Shiva is an opportunity to remember people. And that was really the first time where I was exposed to some of the stories that really confirmed for me what sort of a tough guy that I had always imagined he was. So one story that was told at the Shiva was the boat story. And the boat story took place actually after the war. He was on the boat to America with my grandmother and his, their newborn daughter, my aunt. And uh, an anti-Semitic sailor came up to him and basically told him that he wished he had died with the rest of the Jews. And my grandfather, who I called Poppy, he was not going to take that. And he didn't, and he knocked the guy out. And they were brought down to uh, to the ship's officer, who just laughed because uh, compared to the sailor who stood six foot six inches, six feet six inches, he, um, my grandfather was was about 
five six on a good day. So you know, for him to knock out the sailor was, was certainly um, you know showed his strength. But then the next story that I heard, which really stuck with me, was was what I called the barn story because took place in a barn. But um, this was during the war, um, before the before they were sent to the to the Warsaw ghetto. Um, and my grandfather had been hiding in a barn with a friend, n- not for long. And a Nazi found them and pulled out his gun and told my grandfather to hand over his boots. He had these nice boots on. So my grandfather said to the, to his friend to extinguish the light in the barn. He grabbed a, a pitchfork and, and ran it through the Nazi's neck, leaving the man dead on the floor. So, you know, to have this sort of to have these sort of stories right after his death was just shocking to me. But at the same time, I think deep down, I always felt like this was the sort of man and the sort of hero and the sort of, uh, you know, that he, that he was. And I kind of sensed that courage in him all along and that sort of, um, that sort of strength to stand up for himself in any situation. Did you have a similar, um, sort of eureka moment or a change in thinking about your grandmother after she started sharing some more stories and you found more information about her experiences during the war? Yeah. So those two stories that I just told you were sort of the, the stories that inspired me to want to sit down and write this book, you know, and, and once my grandmother started talking, I, I thought to myself, Oh, I'll write this book about my grandfather and the sort of like, warrior he he was in my mind and my grandmother was the only one left at that time who could tell me the story so i started the book actually stupidly and uh, i wanted to just write about my grandfather and as i sat down with my grandmother and asked her you know tell me about poppy in this camp tell me about him in the warsaw ghetto and she said to me like what do i really know like i don't know about poppy as much as i know about what i had been through and she would tell me her stories set in these places because she had been to pretty much all the same ghettos and camps that he had survived and her stories were as remarkable as the ones that i would later learn about my my grandfather um you know just by way of example she uh was ordered in the uh in the warsaw ghetto by some nazi officer to go into a, a building uh, bring down the books and throw them onto this bonfire, or at least that's what she assumed because there was a big bonfire outside. So she went up into the building, into the apartment, saw the books, but these books were religious texts, and these were the books that you know had her God's name in it. So she wrapped them up uh, carefully in a, with a string, brought them downstairs, but before she even got downstairs, she decided that she would rather die than throw those books on the fire. And when the Nazi instructed her to throw the books onto the fire, she stood there, closed her eyes, and waited for the bullet. And, um, you know, luckily the bullet never came, and the Nazi just ripped the books out of her hand and threw them on the fire himself, probably, but she didn't know because she ran off um, before she could witness that. But, you know, this was the sort of courage this woman had, and there, there, there are many stories like that, and how she stood up for herself and uh, resisted and looked out for friends by sacrificing her bread. And, you know, she was a courageous woman. And I realized that I had made an error by thinking I should just be writing a book about my grandfather. And uh, the book quickly changed direction and it became a book about my grandparents. 
you think you have another book in you, whether about your family or a different topic? Yeah, actually, I'm I'm finishing up a book right now. It's um it's a novel, completely different. Um, it's a set in Flushing, and it's about a a guy with face blindness. But it does take a look at um certain issues that I think are thematic across across both books, and um it, it sort of looks at modern day slavery and. Uh, that's that's a part of the book. So, um, yeah, so I guess I, I do have that. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Thanks, Shira. Noah, thanks again for being on the show. Everyone, check out A World Erased, A Grandson's Search for His Family's Holocaust Secrets by Noah Letterman. It's going to be published and released February 7th of 2017 by Roman and Littlefield Press. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.